And the title of the message is, Lord, I need your touch again. Lord, I need your touch again. I will never forget uh, hearing the story, true story of the birth of twins. They were born premature. Big sister was doing phenomenal. Little brother was struggling. In fact, the doctors told the parents they were not convinced he would survive. He kept losing strength. The parents, of course, are reeling from this. So they decide to put big sister, these little preemies, big sister and little brother in the same incubator because they're thinking, you know, if he just has a few hours, of course, they were in the womb together. We like them to be together. Okay, so they did. And big sister reached over and touched her brother. And something changed. He responded to this. They could see it. It's like he, like, help awaken him. So they decided to keep, of course, big sister and little brother in the same incubator so they could, you know, be together in that companionship. The doctors uh, said later that that touch was the turning point for his survival. What's the point? You never want to underestimate a touch. The touch can be so powerful. I mean, there's all kinds of touches. There's the touch of a mother, the touch of nourish, uh, encouragement and nurturing. There's the touch of a father, which is big. They're all big. But a father to put his hand on your shoulder to say, I love you. It's a sense of confidence and security. There's the touch of companionship, uh, of a friend. Hey, there's a touch. We're all Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're family, right? We, we kind of put our hands on each other. We get together in prayer. It's a way of saying, hey, I stand with you. We are one in the Lord. You never want to underestimate a touch. It can be super powerful. Now, why do I mention this? Because this is a passage, you guys, that tells the story of a man who was touched by God. And his life was like really dark. He was blind. Jesus touched him. And he could see, he could see, but it was blurry. And then Jesus touched him again, and he could see perfectly. Now, no doubt it was a miracle of compassion and a foretaste of what it's going to look like when Jesus returns. Because when Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom on planet earth, he brings wholeness. He brings shalom. We've talked about this many a times. Paul writes that he heals the deep dislocation of planet earth. We have new bodies. I mean, you have the righteousness of God and the wholeness of God and the healing of God known on planet Earth. And so Jesus' miracles are little foretastes of what it's going to look like one day on a worldwide scale. Hey, can I hear an amen to that, right? Okay, but listen, this particular story, and we're going to read in just a second, this particular story, actually in context, we always want to drive context, 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 in context, serves as an illustration, really, of the process that the apostles were going through. It's like they had been touched by Jesus. Like, follow me. Uh, they, Jesus was in the process of opening their eyes the more to who he is and his genius plan. Oh, they believed he was the Messiah. That's why they were following him. But it's like, what does the Messiah look like? What does God's plan look like? He's coming the first time to bear the cross. He's going to come again to uh, wear the crown. They're in process. They're in radical process. And in a similar way, listen, all of us are still in 
process. Okay, so look at this. This is kind of the heart of the passage. We have it up on the screen. Verse 23, he put his hands on this blind man. Jesus did. He asked him if he saw anything. He looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. So it's like, okay, it's better, but it's still blurry. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and was restored and saw everyone. Let's all say the next word. Everyone clearly. All right. So it went from blurry, but it was better, but it's blurry to then absolute clarity. And in context, we're going to see this all the more. Hear this. I mean, this illustrates actually, as I mentioned, what the apostles were going through. Here's the reality. We're like this blind man, every single one of us. The Lord touches us, opens our eyes to who he is. We respond by the grace of God. But there's a process in our life that we need his continual touch in our life as we continue to grow more like the Lord Jesus. Look, Stephanie and I were driving the other day, and we were just so heavy-hearted over a family dynamic. You know, if your kids are suffering, there's nothing worse on planet Earth, right? So without getting into the details to our kids, otherwise I'm going to have to pay them like a $500 honorarium if I use them as an illustration. Okay, I got to keep this like general, but we were just, it was kind of like this, you know, one minute to midnight thing for one of our kids. We were just so burdened and we we're praying and my precious wife, you know, it's on her knees often and tears, you know, and cries out. She's just this great godly woman. And I'm just usually on my knees with her for about 20 seconds. She stays much longer. Anyways, so um, we were just carrying uh, one of our children on our hearts. And I, and I said to her, honey, because I, I had kind of been reading my devotions, this passage, and I said, you know, we just need a touch. I mean, we need help outside of ourselves. You know, we're, this is not something that's going to come from within. We need help from without. We need a breakthrough. And of course, Jesus said, it's little faith that moves mountains. And a mountain speaks of an obstacle. It's like if you're walking on a path and it's like, oh my goodness, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go over that. I mean, it's like, can, can there be an easy way, a highway, a, a kind of, can I go through? I mean, a mountain speaks of an obstacle. And we were praying, Lord, just stamp this thing. Like with your heel, just like crush it and stamp it and stuff and stamp it down and and so we prayed and we were thinking lord touch we need another touch hey listen i just want to give glory to the lord because i gotta tell you the next day there was just radical breakthrough without getting the details we don't have time to to talk to about it but i thank him for it the point is hey we need the lord's touch over and over again okay so that's what we want to talk about. Look at verse 22. Okay, he came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is located north side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so we're talking the hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. It's adjacent to the city of Capernaum, the headquarters during Jesus' public ministry. So this event is taking place there. Interestingly, this was a city that had witnessed so many great divine powers of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Dennis was singing about... Messiah, Christ means anointed. Messiah means anointed. Okay, one. And they were not responsible with what had been demonstrated to them. With knowledge comes responsibility. And Jesus had pronounced judgment, interestingly, on the city. He said, had Sodom and Gomorrah saw what you saw, they would have repented. Okay, so he's like in this area. And it says in verse 22, they, they brought a blind man to him. They did. It's like, who's the they? You know, the infamous like they, the proverbial they. Who? Friends, a remnant 
Who are they? They brought a blind man to him, begged Jesus to touch him. Now, I don't know who the they was, but either way, when we bring people to Jesus, that is a beautiful demonstration of love, is it not? Or when we point people to Jesus. So this is this beautiful love in action. So he took the blind man, it says, by the hand and led him out of the town. Look up here for a second. Look, so watch this. In the original language, it speaks actually of Jesus holding his hand. He's grasping it, you know, firmly. And he's walking outside of this town. Okay, so he doesn't have his hand on his shoulder. He's not saying, you know, can can follow me. He's blind, right? He's really personal with this guy. It's a beautiful sense of companionship and taking an interest in this individual. Now look, verse 23 kind of throws us off. It says, he spit on his eyes. It's like, what? Oh, I don't know exactly what this looked like. I'll tell you this, scholars identify that there's some major cultural dynamics here that are taking place in terms of communications. Like, what does that mean? There's just cultural dynamics as to what such an action would mean in first century, but boiled down of what Jesus is doing is he's being very personal with this guy He's communicating with them. You know, communication's not easy. So, I mean, in order to really communicate, person A and person B really need to be on the same page. Uh, this last week, I got a text from my older brother. And it was, I was on a texting thread, my older brother and my little brother, my baby brother. And so my, my brother, my older brother says, JJ, who's his grandson, swallowed a bottle of ibuprofen. Please pray, no damage. I'm thinking, what? I mean, I get this and I just, oh Lord, I pray. I'm not sure what exactly that means. So my little brother responds, a bottle or pills from a bottle? It's like, could you be more specific, right? All right. And uh, so it's like, hey, did he, he swallowed a bottle of ibuprofen. My little brother's a neuroscientist guy. And he's like, he wants the specifics. Are we talking actually a bottle or pills? I don't know. We are a crazy family, maybe. Actually, it was neither. It was actually a, a third of liquid ibuprofen. Still not good. But point is, not easy to communicate. I mean, you really have to be on the same page. Socrates would say to his students, speak that I might see you. You know, so it's like, I really want to know you. So open your heart to me. Now check it out, verse 23. And he put his hands on him and he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and he saw everyone clearly. Here's point number one. We have it up on the screen. Hey, look. Hey, the Lord wants to touch our lives over and over and over again. Okay, I'll tell you, Jesus is dealing with this man in a very customized way. There's no other record that I'm aware of in Scripture where you have Jesus touching twice, okay? You got to remember, his friends believe Jesus is the answer. He's the solution to his healing. They have seen so much, and... Now he's dealing with this individual in a very customized way. Look, when Jesus asks him, for example, get this, hey, what do you see? Um, I mean, just think the possible peer pressure that man could have been under to answer, oh, no, I, I see, this is great. Oh, thank you very much. 
Because you're the one who raises the dead and walks on the water and calms the seas and stuff. And um, I, it's, it's worked, but it's just worked a little bit. And, uh, but, but, I, but I thank you. And I imagine he could have just, um, he could have not answered authentically. And maybe because of a little bit of peer pressure, not wanting to disappoint his friends or maybe even disappoint the Lord himself. But you have to hand it to this guy. Please hear this. He was totally authentic. He was sincere. He, he answered honestly. It's like, you, yeah, so many people are saying you're the son of God and Messiah. You touch me. Yeah, I see, but it's blurry. It's like, guys, men are like trees. It's like the figure is not clear. And then Jesus touched him again. And you have to wonder if his honesty played a role in this. It tells us that the Lord meets us in a place of honesty and authenticity. Listen, we have the most wonderful heavenly father. He never shames us. He only saves us. And he wants us, please listen, Rise family. He wants us to be totally authentic. Bring your feelings to him. Bring your pain. Sometimes I think it's like, we think, well, Lord, you've touched me in this area. I was dealing with some struggle or habit or bitterness or an issue of unforgiveness. Or I just have a poor attitude and outlook. Please forgive me for complaining. And I had victory over for a while. You know, I asked for your help, but I find myself in a similar situation. And so I don't really want to ask. I feel bad to ask. And listen, the Lord wants us to ask. Reality is a lot of times the way forward is the way back. Here's the application. Cut out the default, man. It's all good. No big deal. No problem. No worries. No, no, no. It's like, Lord, I need your touch on a daily basis. Can I hear an amen to that? And even right now, seriously, even in your heart, here you've come. We have an incredible time of song. Thank you, Dennis and Victoria. We just had a beautiful time. But listen, you can still kind of like not be in a place where your heart is open to him. And I just want to encourage you, and it's not to moralize or to vibe you on that subject. No, man, just just go big with authenticity. It's like, okay, it's okay to ask. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say like, I'm like spinning when it comes to this bitterness or I'm spinning because of this habit or I'm spinning because I'm like fearful or something. Lord, I need your touch again. Yeah, that's what he wants us to do. And as I said in context, that reveals the Lord's daily touch actually in the disciples' lives. We're going to see how this focuses now on Peter. We're going to see how Peter is in process. Touch me, Lord. Like, in a moment, he's going to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and the Lord is going to say, hey, Pete, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, my Father, which is in heaven. You have just been touched. And then he's going to clarify the more his mission. The Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. So in other words, the leadership that represents the nation is not going to embrace me as the Messiah. That's not to say every Jew is not going to believe. No, the leadership. Is, is not going to like embrace, put a crown on my head. They're going to be so fearful of Rome and all these dynamics. Okay, so they're going to crucify me. Peter's going to freak out over this. He's going to need another touch. The Lord is going to touch him with clarity as to what it is to know him and follow him. Are you guys following me here? Then we're going to go into chapter nine and, and they're going to be up on a mountain. It's like, oh my goodness. I mean, you're going to have the appearance of the bookends of Judaism, Moses and Elijah and a 
incredible presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, hovering over Jesus and the disciples. And and, and the Lord, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. It's like all of this are touch, 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 clarity, clarity, love, grace, help. And it just speaks to the reality that we need His touch every single day. But I wanted to say something real quick. A lot of times, you know, Pete is, Peter, that is, is given a little like bad rap in a sense. Oh, he's a slow learner. You know, he's real passionate, great personality, kind of foot and mouth disease. Um, I don't believe, I just think that's a stupid way of categorizing good old Pete. And it actually reflects a ignorance from the West of the dynamics of first century Jewish culture. Because all of these guys are in major process of growth. And so if we kind of deval Pete as like, come on, Pete, you should get this. You know, it's like you're like rebuking the Lord for saying what he did or something. And we kind of like categorize him in that way. It also reflects actually an absence of recognizing our own deep significant need for process in our own lives. After all, we didn't make ourselves. God created us and recreated us in Jesus, and we need his continued touch in our life. Okay, so let's identify four touches, and we're going to be here till 1.30 in the afternoon. No, just kidding. Okay, so number here's point number two. There is the touch of revelation. And illumination. That's what we get next. Check it out. Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. On the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, well, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And he strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about him. Okay, what's taking place? Well, as I mentioned, Matthew's gospel identifies Jesus when Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that it was the Father actually that that gave the touch to lead to that right conclusion, right? So in other words, it came outside of it. Hey, Pete, Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Another way of saying, Pete, you were just touched by the heavenly Father himself. And the fact that the Father touched Peter tells us in principle that the tangible physical world is just as real as the intangible, okay? Physical world is real. But there's also an unseen realm as well. One of my favorite philosophers put it this way, our lives pivot on real things that are non-material, ideas and emotions and imagination and memory, relationships, intuition, suffering, joy, consciousness, and faith. To believe only in what you can see seems a peculiar form of blindness. Because after all, What is intuition? What is joy? What is emotions? What is truth? What is it that we have between us this morning? I mean, there's something taking place between us. There's love, there's friendship, 
There's a sense of identity and purpose. Well, what is that? It's not physical. It is non-physical. The point being that flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter, but the Father. Here's the application, you guys. Ask the Father for more illumination. Ask him to open your eyes all the more to the greatness of who Jesus is. Because, you know, I think of John writing the book of Revelation. I mean, here he walked with Jesus. He knew him up close and personal. He's 90 years of age, you guys. The Lord gave him the great book of Revelation. I'm not saying we're going to get a book like that, not even trying to imply it. Point is, though, he's 90 years of age, and he's like inspired by the God. He's pinning this incredible book to the extent that he sees Jesus returning in glory to establish the kingdom on planet Earth, and he falls down as if he's dead. In other words, he's so like, whoa, 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 I've seen the king. And he's so moved by this, he falls down. He's just overwhelmed by the reality of who Jesus is. Or another way of saying it is he's overwhelmed by absolute reality. And let me just say this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that prayer and the work of God's Spirit that touches our lives and gives us greater insight or understanding afresh of who Jesus is works hand in glove with prayer. So maybe even in your heart right now, hey, just go for it. Application, like, Lord, by your spirit, I, 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 may, may, I, may I continue to grow in the understanding and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? That's a great thing. All right, so Peter's going to be touched again. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, there's a lot to impact here. In fact, all of these portions of Scripture, seriously, we could take a whole week or Sunday, I should say, on each portion. Okay, So we're kind of moving through it. But the big idea here is that national Israel, represented by these leaders, will not embrace Jesus as Messiah. They're not seeing him as the promised Davidic king at that time. But that does not mean, and thanks for your patience, Rise Church family, but it does not mean that Jews do not believe in Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Romans chapter 11, it says, blindness in part has happened to Israel. That's national Israel. And that was written in the first century. So, You have these leaders who represent the nation. They're kind of like the president, the Senate, the Congress. And they're saying, no, no, we we do not acknowledge Jesus as the Davidic promised king. They don't accept him. But again, that doesn't mean that Jews did not embrace Jesus. I mean, Christianity is a Jewish movement, okay? We know that, all right? But the Bible says that that blindness in part one day will be removed. And all of Israel will embrace Jesus as Messiah. All Israel will be saved. Okay? So that's going to happen. When he returns, they look upon him whom they pierced. The Bible says that Jesus said they'll call upon him in the name of the Lord. All Israel will be saved. Which means this. The nation of Israel will live out its full potential in the promised son of Israel, in, in the Davidic king, and, and as, as a nation in the Messiah, the entire world will be 
radically impacted at the second coming of Jesus, okay? I so much want to call for a name in there, but I'm going to just keep moving. Now, check this out. All right, let's just break this down. He identifies the son of man. Now, who are we talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. And this is akin to Daniel chapter 7, when it says, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came of the, from the ancient, he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and language shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. All right, look up here for a second. Thanks for being good Bible students. Please hear this. When Jesus said the son of man, he's not, you know, using the phrase in some esoteric, like, what does that mean, son of man? I mean, such a weird way to identify a human, son of man, right? Um, he's using it very intentionally because biblically, the son of man is the promised king, is the promised king of Israel, through which the entire world is blessed, through which the entire world, you have justice that takes place. What Jesus says is, the king must suffer. So another way of saying this is like, man, in order for there to be wholeness on planet Earth, it cannot be the result of someone showing up and legislating it because there's a deep problem in in, in man himself. He's, there's a broken relationship with God. That needs to be reconciled first. Are you guys tracking with me? It's like there's a darkness behind the darkness. So in other words, if Jesus, for, 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 the, for righteousness and justice and wholeness and the glory of God to be known on planet earth, people need to be healed. And the, and the deepest problem is a dislocation in relationship with God. So Jesus is saying, he's saying here, He's going to go to Jerusalem, and the king, the son of man, the king must suffer. Now, it's like, bear with me here. How do we wrap our minds around that? Don't have a lot of time, but let me just say this. Generally, any healing in life involves suffering. Any growth in life involves suffering. You know, there's growing pains physically. If we want to grow muscles and stuff, you, you got to break them down before you build them up. If there's going to be a reconciliation in a relationship, in other words, peace and wholeness and righteousness and for future generations impact and so forth. I mean, if there's going to be forgiveness, forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is not like, oh, I just never remember the injustice or that, you know, or the abuse or something. No, no, forgiveness is forgetting. It's when the memory comes, I choose not to be informed by it. I choose by the power of God to be like Jesus. And it's like, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing or what they've done. It's like, and that is actually painful. I mean, the grandmother, the grandmother that raises, I mean, the mother that raises these babies, right? Has one, two, five, ten, whatever, raises, and then you know, in her 70s is at a place is now taking care of grandchildren. It's not easy, right? I mean, there's a form of being outside of your comfort zone and suffering, but it's a part of the blessing and the wholeness for the future generations and for her grandchild. So 
what's my point? What I'm trying to simply say is, well, there's no one that has suffered more than Jesus. There's no one ever that suffered more than he has. And his suffering was necessary. In taking the sin of the world upon himself, he became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. He must suffer. It's essential to demonstrate love and bridge the gap between God and man. Can I hear an amen to that? So the question is, man, where is the Lord? Here's the application. Where is the Lord having you to suffer that others might be blessed? That's really a beautiful reality there because I'll tell you something, man. That's love. No, that's love. The elephant in the room with regard to love is love suffers. Love suffers long and is kind, Paul says. Rarely is love romantic. Rarely is it euphoric. In interpersonal relationships, it's non-reactive. It, it retreats. We've talked about it billions of times. and is patient, and then it advances in kindness. And it's like when the Lord's on the cross, man, rather than being re- reactive, he's like, man, I'll just bear it, bear it, bear it, bear it, bear it. Just give it all the, take it all the blows upon himself, and in response, gentleness, redemption, and love. But all of this was too much for good old Pete. I love Peter. I mean, this idea is going to be rejected. I mean, it's like, um, are you kidding me? He's, he wouldn't be the only one. And he, th- this idea of rejection, I mean, the, the, the leader should accept him. He's the Messiah. He's the Davidic king. Look at verse 32. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I mean, is the Lord calling Peter Satan? I don't believe in any stretch of the imagination. The idea behind it, though, anything that would undermine uh, the Lord's redemptive love, the Lord's genius plan, the Lord's suffering to bear the sin of the world, to bridge the gap between God and man, any idea that would undermine that, yeah, I'm going to say it, is satanic. So it's like, Pete, No, look, you got to totally reorient the way you think here. And look at verse 34. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So it's like, Pete, let me me touch you again. Let me bring further clarity about God's plan. It's like, well, what does this mean? Context is king. And I just doubly emphasize this because this is a verse that is often taken out of its context. So it's taken out of its context to follow Jesus means to deny self, like call for delayed gratification. So to be a Christian, therefore, you need to control your bodily drives, which is a good thing, or, you know, don't splurge on Haagen-Dazs ice cream at 11 p.m. I didn't last night. I was very tempted. But anyways, you know, so therefore, to be a Christian, you deny yourself. That's not what he's saying here. Hey, great principle. It's biblical in principle. Or how about this? Take up the cross. Well, that means willing to endure with a smile and have a good attitude. So you're in traffic and stuff and you're enduring the cross. That's actually not what he's saying in context. To pick up the cross is to carry the horizontal beam. It was the lowest form of execution in the Roman world. And what Jesus is saying is that they need to be ready to be perceived as the despised and rejected of culture, although they would be actually the approved of God. Okay? 
They're not going to be endorsed by the religious establishment. The disciples are having a hard time digesting this. Jesus is saying, you guys, this revolution is going to start small. Okay, real small, like a mustard seed. You're, you're, you're not, it's not going to be a popular movement. So I just don't want you to expect it. And so it's like, okay, well, how can, how can you do something that's so right, that is to follow Jesus and to love and to demonstrate justice? I mean, look, more hospitals have been built in the name of, I mean, goodness gracious, Dennis Agajani knows something about the impact of Christianity throughout the world and how followers of Jesus embody justice to big, small, black, white, homosexual or not. I mean, it's followers of Jesus that are the salt of the earth in a beautiful way throughout these last 2,000 years. How can you do something so right, but get pushed back and be seen as, you know, small or even be persecuted for it? The answer is because we live in a broken world. But what Jesus is saying is, you guys, you got to understand this is going to start small and, and you're going to have to pick up a cross. You're going to have to be willing to take a stand, to be the radical minority in the culture that is critical to the healing of the culture, to be different. And so application number three and a half, hey, being radically committed to the allegiance of Jesus is the difference the world needs to live for an audience of one. That's so beautiful. God help us. Hey, you know, the next scene is is incredible. And it has so many layers to it. Kind of reads like a fairy tale in a way. Or a Disneyland ride, I'm going to say. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let me, let me just, let me, before we read it, let me just introduce, like, because I sometimes I think of this passage, I do, I think of a, I think of a ride at Disneyland. Um, oh, it's factual, no doubt. But it's like if you're, you're on this ride and it's taking you back in time up on a big mountain and you're like, whoa, man. Hey, there's, there's Peter, James, and John. And there's Jesus. And then it, you can it continue on this ride. You go a little further and whoa. Then all of a sudden, that, there's Moses. You know, embodies the law, Torah, divine revelation. Elijah, whoa, embodies the prophets, the law and the prophets. These boys, not bigger in Hebrew culture. And then the ride continues a little, saying you see this scene unfolding and you see this unique kind of presence come over. And then there's this voice coming from a cloud, but not a cloud like we think. It's the divine presence, Shekinah glory of God. This is my beloved son, listen to him. You're just like, this, whoa, because that's how it kind of reads. But it's not a fairy tale. It's not obviously a Disney ride. I mean, you have Peter who wrote about this. We have it up on the screen. He says, hey, we are not making up clever stories. So in other words, it's not Greek mythology. When we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus and his coming again, we have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And he, and he received honor and glory from God the Father when God's glorious, majestic voice called down from heaven, this is my beloved son. Son means the king. I am fully pleased with him. Now, some of you are hearing these ideas for the first time. I didn't even read the text. 
So let's read it. It'll be reinforced all the more. Verse 1, chapter 9, it says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Look up here for a second. So in other words, he's asking, context, context, context. Hey, who do men say that name? Elijah, Jeremiah, you know, one of the prophets and stuff. Okay, who do you say that name? Messiah. You've just been touched by the heavenly father. Now, let me give you more clarity on God's genius plan. I'm going to suffer. Okay? The leadership of Israel will not embrace me. That's not to say Jews are not going to follow me. It's a Jewish movement. Okay? Then, further clarity, look, you're going to have to pick up your cross. Because I know you boys are thinking about being on my right hand or my left. And God bless you. Nothing wrong with that. I would have been thinking the same thing. I want to rule and reign with the Messiah. What's wrong with that? And then, he's like, okay, now... I want to just doubly underscore, okay, that I am the Messiah. Don't worry about it. Hang in, because what you're going to see is you're going to see the power of the kingdom of God. There's going to be this demonstration that God's plan is unfolding and that you are rightly in it. So don't panic. All right, so look at verse 2. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. The word transfigured there is a word in the Greek, metamorphosis. But what type of change, what type of metamorphosis are we talking about? I mean, is it a miracle that Jesus radiated glory because the idea is the glory the radiation of light is coming from the outside it's not like a spotlight it's coming out from him i mean is that a miracle or is the miracle that he veiled his glory for 33 years in human flesh and what he's doing now for the apostles Peter James and John is allowing them to see his kingdom glory, that his kingly glory. Are you with me on this, you guys? Okay, that's what's happening. It's a beautiful point. And so point number four is, man, there's the touch of security actually in God's plan, the touch of security. And so in verse four, it says, Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus, kind of the ultimate endorsements from the community of Israel. Luke's gospel tells us the conversation was about his death in Jerusalem. And then in verse 5, it says, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Um, Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now, is this Peter kind of bumbling? You know, it's like, oh my goodness gracious, You have Moses and Elijah and this glory being seen, you know, radiating from Jesus. And he's like, should I just build some booths, some tabernacles here? Uh, You know, a lot of people kind of portray Peter as he's bumbling, he doesn't know what to say. And they, you know, kind of toss him off as kind of like silly, being silly here. But the reality is, good old Pete is, his remarks here are fantastic. It's what he's thinking. He's thinking Zechariah 14. He's actually thinking that 
when the king establishes his kingdom on planet earth, that a part of that is the nations of the world are going to come to Jerusalem recognizing Jesus the Messiah. And, and one of the times that they're going to come up is during the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, which celebrate the faithfulness of God, God's presence with Israel throughout their history. So in other words, another way of just saying it, a lot of information is, he's just thinking, oh my goodness gracious, is the, is the kingdom being established? Is this, is, this tab, is this like tabernacles? Should I build booths here and celebrate your kingdom glory being established? Is it going to unfold even before our very eyes? And look at verse 7, it says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. You know, there were three times in which our wonderful heavenly father endorsed his son, the king. Yeah, the second person, the triune nature of God. He endorsed him two other times at his baptism, When he was entering into Jerusalem, a voice came from a cloud. This is my beloved son. And look, look, what's the the point of all of this? What is the Lord wanting to instill in the disciples? He's wanting to instill that they can fully trust him. Fully trust him. Trust his innate goodness. Trust that once you are in the plan of God, it's like, it's a covenant. You're in, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're empowered, you have hope beyond the grave, you have all of Christ at the moment of conversion, but now you're in process of him having all of you. It is a process. We need his touch. Can I hear a big amen to that? Over and over and over again. It's like that was my prayer coming here. It's like I need your touch of help and gifting and love. I mean, just on a daily basis. It's akin to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the application, you guys. Stake your trust on the faithfulness of the Lord. Maybe some of you, you know, are just waiting for a mountain to be moved and Hey, I've been there. I know what it feels like. It's hard to wait. But I can say, in the name of Jesus, it's about our Father's timing. His timing is perfect. So trust Him. Trust Him. You know, Jesus trusted the Father. He kept walking. He went to Jerusalem. He knew He would be lifted up on the cross. Okay, it was like, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the innate goodness of the Father. We've talked about this millions of times. We can trust him. How is it that the Lord wants to just touch you with a sense of confidence that he is trustworthy, that he has this? Whatever the this is, he got it. He has it. May the Holy Spirit help you with just that. 